I, uh, <clears throat> we began last week talking about <clears throat> um, honesty, um, beginning to understand what it means to be um, poor in spirit. I think I introduced to you the idea that this was coming out of uh, the first uh, real sermon that Jesus gave that we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that we, uh, we see there that Jesus is teaching his disciples in the presence of the crowds, which means that he wanted both to hear, which is a way of saying he wants both those who have already committed themselves to follow him and those who are more on the margin or just curious to hear. One of the interesting things about Jesus' teaching that I'll just mention in that regard is that Jesus didn't distinguish his audiences very much. He gave the same message to both those who were already in the fold, we would call them Christians, and to those who were not. Isn't that interesting? One of the most important discoveries that I ever made, I think as a man, perhaps also as a, as a teacher of God's word, is that, is that Christian people have the same problems as non-Christian people. Believe it or not, I know that's hard to, to imagine, but uh, we have adolescent children too. We have aging parents too. We have marriages that are sometimes difficult as well. In fact, statistically, if you look at the whole nation and some of the studies that have been done comparing evangelical Christians to those who are not, it seems as though there is much more similarity than we might think, which should give us a little bit of pause, perhaps, a little scare us, what difference is our faith making. But when it comes to uh, teaching the word, I am glad to be able to say that I think the things that Jesus is uh, talking about in the Sermon on the Mount and in many other places apply to all of us. So that's my way of saying, if you're in the room this morning, you're supposed to be here, that God intends something for you, that it's going to be good, and, um, and uh, let's, let's dive in and find out. The Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you remember last week we said that the poor in spirit were not people who were namby-pamby or sort of, you know, mousy people. These were people who simply recognized their need for God. That to be poor in spirit above all else means that I recognize that I need God. In fact, one of the translations of Scripture, uh, I think it's the New English Bible, which is not one that we use very much, actually translates the verse that way. Blessed are those who know their need of God. And one of the things that I think is so important for us as men is to get lined up what we say we believe with what we really believe. It is so easy for all of us to have a kind of outward face, an outward persona. And inwardly, we're thinking something else. We're feeling something else. So it's real easy for me to say, in effect, I, yes, I recognize my need for God. I I'm, I'm need God. But inwardly, I'm actually living my life as if I didn't. You could call that practical atheism, if you wish. I profess one thing, but with my life, I confess another. And in in the deepest sense, there's only one word for that. It's hypocrisy. You know where the hypocrisy comes to the Greek word that has to do with masks. People would actually 
to any gathering, sort of social gathering, people would actually come in those days with masks. They would, you've seen pictures of them. They'd hold the mask over their face, and they'd have a happy face or a sad face. And that's actually the beginning of theater. That's where theater got started in, in the Greek world, was you'd wear a mask, whether you're happy or sad. But the point is that behind the mask was something else. Maybe behind the happy face was a sad face. And it's really amazing that what Jesus wants is congruity. What Jesus wants in our lives is for us to be able to say one thing and mean the same thing. I've had the privilege of going to Japan many times in my life, um, and I really love Japan. I don't know if there's anyone here who is Japanese or who uh, is familiar with the Japanese culture. I'm and if, I'm, if you are Japanese, uh, help me not mess this up by correcting me after, afterwards. But in Japan, you know how people bow? And, and it's a very interesting thing that when people bow, they, they are sort of bowing and they're looking at the other person as they bow to see how far down that person is going to go. Because if they feel like they are to be humble before that person then they will make sure they bow just a couple of inches lower than the other one. And the other guy, if he feels like he's really, you know, above the other guy, then he'll make sure that he doesn't bow quite as much. And um, the interesting thing about that is that um, they have words to describe the way they really feel. In other words, I'll bow, but inwardly I may be feeling something quite different. So in, um, in the Japanese language, tatate is what I uh, do outwardly. Tatate is the bow, but hone is what I'm feeling in my heart. And, and they actually have these contrasting words. In, in Japanese culture, it's why we would sometimes feel as, as uh, Westerners that there's a kind of politeness, but you don't really know what's going on under the surface, and that's exactly true. Because we see the tatate, but we don't see the hone. But isn't that true about us, too? What is your hone? And how do we begin to be honest about our hone? How do we begin to take down the masks? I think that is what Jesus is wanting us to do as we come into grips with this amazing teaching that he's giving. Do we really say we need God? So I've tried to break that down for you in these three weeks that I, I have the the fun of being with you, into three ideas. Honesty last week, and then this week I'm going to, we're going to cover humility and helplessness. Because these are ways in which I actually think we can get concrete about the notion or the idea that, um, uh, that, that in my hone I need God. Not in my tatate, but in my hone. So last week we talked about honesty, um, a tremendous subject. Remember I said to you that, um, uh, that a great saint from the Middle Ages uh, named St. Thomas said that if I do not bring out what is within me, it will kill me. But if I do bring out what is within me, it will heal me. You know, there's, a, <laughs> there's undoubtedly... Uh, psychologists and counselors in the room. That, I mean, that's, that's your business. 
That, and that's what you do. You help people bring out what is within them because you know that if they don't, they're inevitably going to be trapped by the very things that have made their life up, the very things that, that are in their own history. And one of the great things about the small groups that Don is asking you to be in is that it's in that context that we learn to be honest. It, it isn't in a group this size. I was honest with you last week about myself, about my issues, about um, the, um, uh, the uh, addiction that I went through. I did that not, I, I pray every time I would say that, it's not to sort of make a show of it. It's not. But it is, in a sense, to say you can survive being honest. You really can. Not only can you survive, I want, to, I want to suggest to you that it's when we begin to be honest that we thrive, not just survive. I can tell you that I was a person who was very, very much into hypocrisy. And what I mean by that is the masks. I wouldn't have thought of it as hypocrisy. I just thought of it as being polite. But I really wasn't polite. I was hiding. I didn't say nice things just because I wanted to be kind to you. I said them because I didn't want you to know what was going on inside of me. And since the great crash in my life, when all that kind of fell apart, the most wonderful thing in the world is I am actually experiencing the freedom of what it means to tell you who I am and to live who I am. To live who I am. To, to work at getting my tatate and my hone on the same page. Honesty is a great thing. I have a little bit of humor, if you don't mind, about honesty. Um, I'm from Texas, as, you, as I think you know. And I have a very, very startling and important revelation to tell you. Uh, and that is that George Washington was not a Virginian. He was a Texan. <laughs> yes, he was. And it was not a cherry tree that he chopped down. It was a mesquite tree on the banks of the Pecos River in West Texas. And his father came to him and said, George, we do not have much shade here in West Texas. Did you cut that mesquite tree down? And George said, yes, father, I did. And his father said, George, pack your bags. We're moving to Virginia. If you can't lie any better than that, you'll never make it in Texas. You know, there are bold, outright lies in our lives. There are li lies that are just, you know, we, they, we, they're just so blatantly untrue. But the lies that I'm talking about are more subtle, right? It's the, it's the lie that you actually begin to believe about yourself because you've never been able to talk about yourself. And I believe that we can't really grasp how freeing it is to say, I need God. I need Jesus Christ. Blessed are me because I need him. I can't begin to say that until I learn to be honest. And then I want to talk about helplessness that follows the honesty and then humility. Helplessness and humility really follow upon each other so closely that it's really very difficult um, to separate them. When I say the word helpless, I don't know what you think, but I think whatever that means, I don't want to go there. I don't like being helpless. I do not like being out of control. And indeed, I think we have to be careful here. I am not saying, by what I'm about ready to say, that you're not to take responsibility for your life. I'm not saying that you don't plan, that you don't think, that you don't lay down um, the, the sorts of 
objectives and goals that you have to do in your business life or even in your personal life. But I am saying this. We cannot control the outcomes anywhere near as much as we think we can. We plan our plans. We plan our action. But do we really plan the outcome? We'd like to think we do, but actually in most areas of our life, most, almost every area of our life, we do the best we can to set up the circumstances, but then what happens to us is that we, we lose control over those outcomes. Unless you become like a little child, Jesus said. Now, being, being a little child really wasn't, it, it really wasn't humility or, or innocence. Little children, if you've ever had one, you know they're not innocent. No, becoming a little child is to recognize my inability to affect my environment. Little kids, are, they're, they're rather helpless. They're completely dependent for direction, for care, for comfort. And that is what I think Jesus wants us to know about him. We are completely dependent on his father for care, for comfort. The truth in my own life is that my life didn't take off until I, in some ways, gave it up. Until I recognized that I could not control everything in my life, I wore myself out. And over 30 years, I worked so hard to control the outcomes. And it didn't work, finally. You know, what, what happened was I got to a place where I just realized I wasn't going to be able to do this anymore. I became exhausted at doing it. Now, some of you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Maybe you're in the prime of the way you're thinking about your life, and you're just saying, let's go for it. I can do this. I can make it happen. But others of you, I suspect you know what I mean. You've tried so hard to affect your environment, and yet the results seem so small. What I have learned is that if you fight anyone or anything, hear me now, if you fight anyone or anything, you'll lose. I'm not saying that we do not take moral stands, that we don't fight for the right of things. But I am saying that when it comes to our personal lives, if we start to fight, we will fail. We need to, I used this analogy last night talking to the, the uh, men and women that are being trained as leaders in, in this church. We have got to learn to put the sword down it's like we've got a sword and we're trying to slay the dragon with the sword. Sort of in a, an imaginary fantasy picture. Take the sword and, and just swipe it through the dragon. But what happens is that the dragon doesn't get slayed. It's actually a, a twist of reality that when I lay down the sword and I look the dragon in the eye, that that's when he begins to retreat when I realize that I am not capable, I all of a sudden begin to understand the capability of God. And this really becomes extraordinarily freeing when that happens. I'm learning not to manage the results. I'm learning not to try and control the outcomes. I'm learning 
to not try and control the way you think of me. I think I said this last week. Forgive me if, it's, if I'm repeating myself, but maybe it's worth hearing again. I can't control your perception of me. I'd like to, but I can't. But what I've come to believe after years and years of trying to make an impression, of trying to sell myself, years and years of being in the theater, literally, as I think I told you last week, but also in the theater of life, trying to impress you, trying to make you think well of me, what I've come to is an extraordinarily freeing notion. It's this, that what you think of me is none of my business. And what I think of what you think of me will kill me. And the only thing that really matters is what God thinks of me and what I think of me. I don't say that arrogantly. I just say it actually humbly, I hope. I'm, I'm trying to give up controlling things that I really don't have control of. My wife used to put a sticker every few months. She'd put a sticker, sticky thing, a post-it note on the mirror in my bathroom. I'd see it in the morning when I got up. It said, for peace of mind, resign as general manager of the universe. And, and the reason that that is funny is because when we say the universe, we, we know we can't control the universe. But, but then shrink it down. How about this planet? How about this country? How about this state? How about this city? How about my neighborhood? How about my business? How much can I really control? And I think it's very helpful to, to see that when I lose my peace, the question is, what am I trying to control? It, really, it, test yourself. Lose your peace. Say, I'm not very peaceful today. I'm not very happy. Ask yourself the question, what am I trying to control? And what really begins to happen to us is that we... Um, we find in a wonderful kind of way that our weaknesses, that the places where we are weak, the places where I am helpless, actually become the launching pads to my openness to Christ's power and presence in my life. In other words, it's when I am out of control. It's when I can't make it happen. It's when I'm honest about that and I'm willing to say, I can't do it. Then it's God who teaches me that he'll take my strengths and he'll use them so that when I am weak, I become strong, as the Bible says. When I am weak, I become useful. Another way to say that is that I need to learn to become a little useless because it's really when I stand before God useless that God says, I'm going to use this guy. Why? When you're useful and you're in control, who gets the credit? You do. But when you're out of control, when you're useless, who gets the glory when something good happens through your life? Usually it's God. And God is just jealous enough for his own glory 
that he is prepared to say to every one of us, until you give up the driver's seat, you're going to crash the car again and again and again. I think I said this last week. Forgive me. I've, I've had the privilege of speaking so many times here this month that I kind of forget what I you know, said, you know, last week or yesterday or whatever. Um, but your Mother Teresa said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you got. And it's only when I get to the place that I understand how great my need is. This is why I can say to you, that I can almost say, almost, I don't know if I can quite say it yet, but I'm getting there. I can almost say to you, I am glad I'm a, I'm a narcotic addict. Because in that place of helplessness, and addiction is helplessness, addiction becomes the way in which I see my own helplessness. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you drink too much. Some of you look at things you shouldn't look at too much. And you know, you know the grip it has on you. And you know you'd like to be able to say, well, I can control this. Famous last words of almost any alcoholic or addict I've ever known. I can control this. I can stop when I want to. Try it. Addiction is a mental compulsion that leads to an overwhelming physical demand. And the only way to change addiction is not to try and change the physical demand side of it, not to try and will yourself not to use whatever the addictive substance is or whatever the process is. The only way to overcome addiction, brothers, is at the place of the mental compulsion, which leads to the absolutely overwhelming physical drive. And the way we begin to control the mental compulsion is by realizing that I can't control the mental compulsion. Irony of ironies, it's when I finally give up that I make room in my heart and life for the Lord to begin to work. Some of you know this quite well, and some of you are, are just looking saying, wow, that's kind of crazy. Being out of control. Is that very American? The idea, you see, is that you can't control the difficult parts of your life as much as we think we can. We can't control our suffering, and we shouldn't try and control our suffering because that's the value of it. God does bring things into our life that are difficult. And he does so because those things become the place at which his honor and his glory and his power are displayed. So in the end, it kind of comes down to what do you want? Do you want your own honor and glory and power to be displayed? Or are you at a place in your life when you're finally saying, I don't think much of my honor, my power, my glory anymore. It hadn't really produced a lot. And I would like to see if God's honor and power and glory can maybe be more pleasing for me and more fulfilling for me and make me more of a useful person. The Lord takes what we want 
to throw away. The Lord takes what is broken. The Lord takes what doesn't work anymore. Did I tell the story last week about Archbishop uh, Gregory Venables of, of uh, Buenos Aires? I know I did in a sermon here a couple weeks ago, um, but did I tell you that story in here? Because I know a lot of you, many, many of you are not from, from this church. Let me tell you this. It's a great story. There's a guy in Buenos Aires right now. He's an, the Archbishop of the Anglican Church, okay, the English Church in Buenos Aires. He himself is an Englishman. He grew up in England, but then at a fairly, well, first part of his life was in England, but then the second part of his childhood was in Buenos Aires. And when he was a small boy, they had tea, English tea, like English people do in the afternoon. And the, uh, one day they were getting tea, and his mother said, get, the, get, the plate, get a plate, and we'll put uh, the crumpets on it for the tea. So he went, and he got the plate and gave it to his mother. Beautiful Wedgwood plate but there was this big chip in it. And his mother said, throw this away. It's, you know, it's no good. Put it in the trash outside, out back. So he did. 30 years later, he's the archbishop of the Anglican Church in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. And he's going to go out to a village where he is going to uh, meet with a little congregation of people poor people way, way out in the wilderness in, Austral- in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, and for the first time, their bishop is coming to see them. And, and the people are all excited. And he gets there and everything, they've, they've tried to fix everything up and make it just as beautiful as they could. And then, of course, the bishop is there. We're going to celebrate communion. And the, uh, the, the archbishop stands behind the table, and you've seen the, your, your minister do it. He takes up the bread, and he breaks it and holds it out for the people. And as Archbishop Venables did that, he looked down, and he saw that the plate upon which the bread was resting was the Wedgwood plate with the big chip out of it that he hadn't seen in 30 years. And this was the plate that was bearing the bread symbolizing the body of Christ, the broken body of Christ, the helpless body of Christ, the body of Christ that was, had all power and all glory because he was the second person of the Trinity, is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, broken, helpless for us. God takes broken things And he wants to use them. God takes broken men to use to minister to a broken world. And he does this because this is after the pattern of the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus became weak and helpless. Hear me now. The eternal Son of God He was always God. He had always been God. From eternity past, he had been God. He was with God when the worlds were made. In fact, the worlds were made through him. He was like the general contractor of the universe. All power and glory were his. And when he was born of a woman's womb and and became flesh for us. It was really 
God saying, I become weak. You know, the Christian faith is preposterous, absolutely preposterous to people in the East. Because Eastern religion says that the incarnation is unnecessary because God's already here. He's already in everything and everyone. And the great religions of the West, other than Christianity, Judaism and Islam, Islam is actually a Western religion more than it is an Eastern religion, their view is that it is absolutely impossible, impossible for the incarnation to happen. God would never, never become a man because it's too low, it's too weak. And in Judaism, of course, especially Islam, as we know, the notion of God being weak is absolutely intolerable. But our God is a God with wounds. He took upon flesh, and then he died helplessly. Maybe that's not attractive to you. I know it's kind of frightening in a way. What kind of God do I believe in? He's out of control. Well, no, he isn't. But he became out of control in time and space for you and for me. That's the significant thing that we really need to remember. Now, when we think of ourselves this way, when we begin to see ourselves this way, I think it should lead to a little bit of humility, don't you? Helplessness, honesty, helplessness leads to humility. Well, what is humility? One time, uh, Winston Churchill was asked to say something complimentary about uh, his arch nemesis, Lord Attlee. And he paused and said, he is a humble man. And with good reason. (laughs) Actually, you know, it's fascinating if you begin to understand the world in which Jesus lived and the world in which Paul um, operated. This was the Greek world, and I spoke about this again last night to some of the, the officers. Let me just briefly summarize. It was a world in which displaying your weakness was absolutely unthinkable that the, the idea was that every man had to be strong and reasonable, that rank was everything. Where you stood in the social ladder was everything. In that world, you would never, never admit a weakness. You would not talk about it. Lowliness was despised in this world. The Greeks never even used the word humility. At least they didn't use it in a context of approval, far less of admiration. Instead, they meant by it an abject, servile, servient attitude. The crouching submissiveness of a slave is what they meant. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ came along and actually began to teach that humility was a far richer and far more attractive thing than that, that the world began to see something different. Humility is not thinking, I'm less than. Humility is not being a lowly person. Humility is the recognition that I'm a limited person. 
that I'm finite, that the world is big, and I am small. And if you are a philosopher or a poet or a writer, that kind of truth has been the, the, the content, the substance, the grit for a whole lot of, of despairing art and literature. The world is so big and I'm so small, I can't control it. If the universe, brothers, isn't personal, if God isn't the big one, God who is a personal God who loves me, if it's just a cosmic force out there and then just little me, that is a prescription for despair. But because God is personal and because he's a God of love, then for me to begin to admit that I'm limited is not a bad thing at all. It's actually good. Humility is realism about myself. That's all it is. It's realism about who I am. Humility comes when I reckon that I'm much more like everyone else out there than I am like God. Let's say, let's say you've got a scale of goodness, okay? Goodness is, goes from zero all the way to 100. Okay, at about three, you've got an axe murderer, okay? And at 99.99999, you know, whatever, you've got Mother Teresa. Or say, let's give, let's give her, you know, a little bit of problem. She's a 92, 95, whatever. What's the problem? Where are you? Well, probably most of us would say we're somewhere between an axe murderer and Mother Teresa. <laughs> but what's the problem here? The problem is that the, the, the difference between 99.9999% and 100 is an infinite distance. That's why we need a Savior who was perfect. Jesus was perfect. He wasn't even on that scale. But he was humble. Huh? He didn't need to be. But he was. The interesting thing about humility is that you cannot pursue it directly. Think about it. I'm going I'm to really work at being humble today. I'm going to be humble today. Yeah, I'm going to be so humble today. It doesn't work. For one thing, you get proud that you're so humble. And for another thing, your effort just doesn't, it doesn't move you in the direction you want to go. Humility is one of those wonderful and mysterious things that demands that I let go of it and, and seek it in indirect ways. So, for example, the way I begin to actually live out my humility is by deliberately taking care of my side of the street, the things that I've done that aren't right, cleaning up my side of the street and not worrying about the other person's side of the street. And so when I go to that person, I don't go with a lot of, yeah, I'm sorry, but. Humility is actually going and saying, you know, I messed up and I'm sorry, even, even if the other person had a lot of problems in what they did. The power of humility is when I don't use the but. I, I'm becoming convinced, brothers, that my greatest life project is to reform myself. It isn't to reform you. That if I can take care of one person, 
then that's really just about enough. To dare to look inside, to admit our need, to be concerned about the harm that our needs and drivenness have produced on others, not to focus on their contribution, but in a really significant way to be introspective and to examine myself with a kind of brutal honesty, this is really liberating. It is really liberating. Particularly in a blame culture that we live in today where everybody's trying to blame everybody for everything. You know, Lincoln was once very harshly criticized and he paused and responded that the charges were likely true. But then he went on to say that he was far worse, actually, than any critic could ever know. How refreshing. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you do have a legitimate complaint. And you know what? If you knew a lot more about me, you'd have a lot more to complain about. Turn judgment. This is another way to kind of be indirect about this humility thing. Turn the judgment of others into an examination of myself. I don't know about you. I, I am so able and capable of judging people. I, I, I think there have been times in my life when I am a judgment machine. I walk into a room and I immediately start making evaluations about the people in that room. I kind of live off of those judgments. It's like they're the kind of little food I'm eating right there. It's a way I feel good or better about myself, but actually it isn't. It really isn't, is it, in the end? I have actually prayed that God would take my disposition to judge others away. And when your life falls apart, that's what usually happens. <laughs> But your life doesn't have to fall apart before you can do that. You can start doing it now. Just pray. Do you know, do we really believe that we can pray that God will change what's going on in our hearts? It's, see, it's part of our control deal that we think we have to change. And I'm telling you, you have to pursue it indirectly. You can't change a lot of what's going on in your heart. You can't fix yourself. Isn't that the Christian message? And yet when it comes to something like judging, we don't even pray about it. We just think it's the way I am. I'm going to judge people because, well, they need judging. But if I actually say, Lord, help me not to judge, and I pray that every day for two weeks, I promise you, if you pray that every day for two weeks, you will begin to stop judging. Because those are the kind of prayers God really likes. Another thing I should do to pursue humility is learn to laugh at myself. Learn to laugh at myself. You know, I am a person who makes neurotic outcomes of the most benign events. Laugh at myself. I'm a person who takes something, something very simple and I make it very complex. I'm beginning to understand that the way I read reality is through a filter of a lifetime of judgments and decisions and opinions. And you know what? 
I'm not always right. In fact, I may be right far, far less than I think. But I can begin to laugh at myself. C.S. Lewis says, the joke is that we're all wrong. And it's really true. If I go into life knowing that you're wrong and I'm wrong, then it produces humility in me an expectation that maybe, maybe my demeanor of humility will begin to change you just a little bit. Even though that's not what I'm after. I'm after changing myself. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath. Right? Isn't that what the proverb says? When I come into a situation and it's like this, defensiveness begins, polarization continues, and usually nobody wins. That's the way our world's um, diplomacy is conducted. But you know, if I can have the grace to see the truth when I'm criticized and say, yeah, you're right. In, in, in what you're saying just there, I did mess up. My problem is that I suffer from a case of terminal uniqueness. I think I'm unique. I think I'm special. I think I'm not wrong. I think I have a right to be right. And yet when I come at a situation honestly looking at my part of it, it makes a huge difference. Ask for help. Asking for help is one of the great ways we can not just show humility. Actually, it's very indirect. We're just honestly asking for someone to help us. You know what it does? It honors another person when you ask for help. It really honors them. And it really has the effect of, in the right sort of way, humbling me. Here's the irony. It's the humble, it's actually the humble, who end up really leading. It's actually those who have right-sized themselves, who know themselves so well that they're not trying to hide themselves. They're not trying to perform. They're not trying to show you they're great, that they're a great leader. They just are who they are. And we sense strength in that. We sense, we say it like this, that guy's really in touch with himself. And if you're really in touch with yourself, brothers, it's going to lead to humility. Now here's, here's really the most important thing. We know that Christ humbled himself even to the point of death. We know that because Paul teaches it. And we observe it when we think of Christ going to the cross. And the problem with some of us is that we look at that and we say, okay, Jesus is my example. I need to be humble like Jesus. Please hear me. It doesn't work. You are not like Jesus. And I am not like Jesus. I am not the eternal second person of the Trinity. I am not the eternal Son of God. And, and the humility that Jesus bore was 
utterly unique and utterly different. And for me to try and imitate it is, is really almost foolhardy. Bear with me, brothers. It doesn't work. Think about it. I'm going to be humble like Jesus today. Well, how was Jesus humble? Well, he gave, he, he didn't own anything. He didn't drive anything. He was dependent upon a group of women that fed him and clothed him. I mean, honestly, can we really be humble like Jesus? No. And maybe we shouldn't. But here's where the rub comes in. It is not that we are to imitate Jesus' humility. It is rather that we are to enter into the humiliation of Jesus. And this is subtle, but it's a real key to everything. Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. Now, wait a minute. How could we fill it? The suffering of Christ was complete. He did, he did everything that was necessary for our salvation. How can I be filling it up? And the answer is, I continue to portray to the world the suffering of Christ in my own humility. That as I move, if I'm self-consciously moving with Christ, I'm accompanying Christ. I'm not imitating. I'm going with Jesus to the cross. As I read the scripture, do I look at the scripture and say, well, that's a good point. Hmm, yeah, that's good. Okay, well, I'll I'll take that point. Uh, Oh, here, what's the point of this one? And if you're a preacher, you don't need just one point. You need three points in a poem every time you read the Bible. I don't think that's a good way to read the Bible. It's It's a left brain way to read the Bible. Let me tell you how I'm learning to read the Bible. And you are looking at one of the most left-brained people in the world. I love theology. I love categories. I'm very linear in my thinking. But I'm learning to read the Bible a little bit with my right brain. So I imagine the story. What are stories for? Why is so much of the Bible story? Are you supposed to get two or three points out of every story and then go around talking about those didactic points? No. Stories are stories. You enter into the story. The meaning is in the story. It's not in the points about the story. So don't be so Western when you read the scripture. Let's enter into the story. So let me give you an example. Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration And Jesus is there. Remember, he's transformed. He's transfigured. They see him in his eternal glory for just a few seconds. As he was before his incarnation. They they get a picture of that. And then Moses and Elijah are there. And Moses and Elijah are two experts on departures. And they're talking to Jesus about the departure he's about ready to make in Jerusalem. That's what it says in the text. You remember Moses' departure from Egypt? Pretty good, you know, a million people got away from the Egyptians. Elijah's departure, chariot, the fire, that was pretty good too. And they're talking to Jesus about departures. And Peter, James, and John are asleep. And then Jesus is transfigured before them, and they get awake. 
But here's what I do. It isn't just Peter, James, and John up there. It's Peter, James, John, and Skip. Oh, I'm silent. I don't try and change anything. I don't, I don't contribute to the conversation at all. I'm there. In my imagination, I walk with Christ. In my imagination, as I read the passion narratives, which are the last section of each of the Gospels that has to do with Christ's suffering and death, they are the longest portions of the Gospels, aren't they? In all four of the Gospels. Why? Because we're to live in them, we're to understand them, we're to know them, we're to walk them with Jesus. We're to go with Christ to the cross. I, I walk along the road. I see him carrying the cross. I watch him stumble and fall. I watch Simon picking up the cross. I see him climbing up the last hill. I see him hanging there. I'm there. Isn't that what a story is for? When I do that, brothers, the texture of my inner life changes. I don't just have ideas about Christ. I'm with Christ. We are not to live our, our lives with a bunch of ideas about Jesus, how Jesus lived and to try and imitate those ideas. The only way we can obey his commands, the only way we can begin to live as he did is walking as he walked and walking with him where he walked. I recognize that this is new for many of you. It's new for me, relatively new, the last few years of my life. A way of thinking and reflecting on the Bible. I thought I had invented something really spectacular in my lack of humility when I thought about reading the Bible that way. And then I began to study a little bit and I discovered that there have been people for the last 2,000 years who have understood that way of reading the Bible. There's not too many Americans that get it. And the reason is we like things clear, precise, linear, sequential. And stories aren't like that. <laughs> is the story of your romancing your wife and getting married, is that a kind of, do you draw logical, deductive conclusions from that story? No, it's a romance. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to live it. And actually, when you think about the difficulties in your marriage, you're supposed to live it again. And it helps you to remember, I really actually fell in love with this woman. Life that is lived with Christ becomes life that is lived in Christ and then life that is lived through Christ. Now, those prepositions, I call them the, the, the Paul's theology of prepositions. Paul, in his epistles, uses those three prepositions again and again and again to describe our life with Jesus. He doesn't use the term Christian. You know that? 
Paul doesn't say to Timothy, I'm glad you're a Christian. He uses the term in Christ. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And that means you walk with him. You, you, you live your life, as it were, through him. You see him living. You walk with him. And then the amazing thing begins to happen. I begin to change. I suddenly find God doing for me things I could not do for myself, like beginning to be humble. And sometimes, brothers, this means I do nothing. Sometimes it means I don't take charge. I don't try and control things. I don't take the initiative. Sometimes I just sit and wait. Not out of laziness, not out of irresponsibility, but just waiting. Waiting for the Lord to move, to act. David said it. He was a great leader, wasn't he? David was a fabulous leader. But in Psalm 27, he says, I will wait patiently for the Lord. Yea, I will wait for the Lord. And it's in our waiting that humility begins to work itself into our lives. It's not in acting. It's waiting before God, waiting before him. Going with Jesus and seeing how that withness changes what goes on in us. Honesty, helplessness, humility. It's really a triad. They belong together. They're words that out of the context of the way we've been talking about them last week and this week, they sound weak. But you know what? The weakness of God is stronger than men. Right? The weakness of God is stronger than men. Say amen. Amen. Lord, our God, help us to believe that the things that we've just been saying are true. As as, um, remarkable as they are, as different as they may sound to the way we honestly live our lives day by day, help us to conform our lives to this wondrous way of living. Help me to be honest with my brothers and sisters about who I really am, not to hide. Help me to admit that I really cannot control every outcome. And help me, help me, Lord, to walk with Jesus in such a way that it is as if his humility rubs off on me in the walking. And in that sense, Lord, help me to try not to be so humble, but to go with the humble one. For we pray in his name. Amen.